Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We're talking business now with Sam Schutte, the founder and CEO of Unstoppable Software. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Sam talks with us about the circumstances that started his entrepreneurial journey, the strategies he's used to build Unstoppable Software, and how he helps other companies achieve growth, too. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You bet. Unstoppable software. Sounds like something that is a force to be reckoned with. You don't want to get in its way. (laughs) What does Unstoppable Software do, Sam? We are a custom business software development company. And basically, we bolt on to our customers that may or may not have development teams to help them deliver products and solutions more quickly and kind of amplify their ability to get stuff out, create new products, new tools for their for their users, stuff like that. Why did you decide to start Unstoppable Software? Tell us about the chain of events that led you to take the entrepreneurial leap. I had worked for a number of years, uh, before I started the company, I worked for a number of years for some three or four startups in a row that, you know, they had funding, we were building products, and it was really like a four-year period where you spend nine to 12 months at each startup and it would either get sold, run out of money, or get a better opportunity. And and I think, you know, I learned a good amount about sort of what it took to get a business like that off the ground. And I also kind of learned like, you know, I think this is something, I think this is something I can do. You know, a lot of these folks don't have anything. They don't have some magic formula that I don't have, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the time, right before I started the company, and so this was January of 2008, which was sort of a funny year because the beginning of that year was was a good economy and by the end was a terrible economy, right? Oh, yeah. Come October, Um, everything was, all bets were off. Exactly. And so I had finished up a contract or was kind of finishing up a contract as a software developer. I was always just a developer writing code up to then. And a friend of mine who actually was a drummer in a band I was in at the time got promoted and said, hey, you know, why don't you come and do like a six-month contract for me? because we want to build some new systems. And at the time, my house was on the market for sale. My wife was pregnant. I was going to night school to get my MBA, you know, and I had just, of course, but but I was out of work basically because this contract had just ended, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, sure, why not? Let's just start a company. I mean, that's, yeah. you know. Why not? Time. Perfect why time. Not? You're, you're birthing everything else. Why not birth a company? Exactly. And so, so I started then in January of 08, and I think, I guess basically I called it Unstoppable Software because I just always found that when we were working, when I was working in IT departments and product development teams, there was always just a lot of people who wanted to say, no, that's not possible, we can't do that, can't, can't, can't. And I really wanted to always say that I, I wanted to be in the business of yes, you know, and I wanted to find a pathway to solutions to difficult problems that our customers had, right? Because there's always a way. It's just do you mm-hmm. want to spend enough to, to solve it, right? And so I think that was a little bit around it. And I think just because I had so much going on, I thought I want a name that really motivates me, right? So that was kind of how we all got started. Essentially, you saw a gap in service, a lot of no's, people in the industry not wanting to be a true partner. And so you recognize that. And you parlayed it into a competitive edge for starting a new business. Yeah, exactly. And I think and that's evolved a lot over the last decade. But I think it's still kind of the same idea. And that keyword you said was partner, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that almost 
for the most part, most of our customers, very few of them would just call us a vendor or a supplier or a contractor. I mean, yes, that's what we are, but I, it's pretty common that they, they say, you know, we want to partner with you on this project or we, here's our partner in Sable Software. And, and that, that means a lot to me because, you know, we have, a, we have a vested interest and a stake in their success then, right? And there's a lot of reasons that that's true, I think. Like our pricing model is different than most consulting firms because we do a flat rate total project ownership projects as opposed to just running up an hourly billing bucket as much as we can, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have skin in the game, right? And so if they, you know, if we build a product and we're over budget and it doesn't succeed, we're getting hurt too. And I think, you know, the other aspect of that is it's really allowed us over time to focus and talk a lot about a client's software development strategy, right? So, you know, most a lot of people think software development in, the, in, a, in an apartment, you know, it's almost kind of like a, particularly if you're at a big company and you've got an IT department, it's almost, it's, you know, it's a pure cost. It's just something you have. It's like you're paying your electric bill and it's just, just exists. Mm-hmm. But how exactly. can you leverage it? Yeah, but how can you leverage it as a real asset? you know, the intellectual property you develop. And I think our biggest successes are when, you know, we'll, we'll work with a customer to drop a tool or a product on their market and that their competitors sort of say like, whoa, where did they get this thing? You know, mm-hmm. because just that piece of software will help them just start dominating the market. And that's, so, and that's I think, you achieve that by really tying in technology development into your strategy. Let's talk about, how you've been able to grow Unstoppable Software. What's been your strategy since this is a different business model? In a sense, you're a consulting firm, but it's, you're using a little bit different model. You're basically embedded almost, it sounds like, in these companies. So talk with us about how you've had to adjust your growth plans for Unstoppable. How have you been able to, with the additional time and investment that you make into your clients, how do you still manage to achieve growth? How do you scale when it seems like it's probably got a lot more upfront costs in that that initial investment? That's a good question. I mean, I think one aspect of it is, is, you know, because we have to do that upfront work, and I call it, you know, I say, look, we have to do our homework. We start every project with an initial design and discovery engagement, okay? And, And that can vary from a few thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on what it is we want to do. So if we're coming in for three months and really planning with you and and working through the details of like how to make this project, you know, return and and really hit some key strategic benefit, I mean that's that's value we're delivering and so we charge for that as a project. That is a project. Right. And the and then the deliverables from that are a lot of documentation on like, you know, here's what we're gonna do and why and here's why it's valuable. So you know, sometimes that can be stuff that we've had to go and like present to the executive board and stuff to justify the project. Uh, if you're talking about bigger companies, and you know, we help our clients sell that to their board, building business cases and that sort of stuff. And then, of course, also just like you know, here's the sort of roadmap of this of this plan and how much every phase of that roadmap will cost and how that all kind of works. And the thing is, is like if you're spending serious money on something like this, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do you want to work with a firm that just comes in and says, look, here's our hourly rate. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the budget is. We're going to just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we'll get there. It doesn't seem very professional. And I think if you look at other businesses and other consultants, like imagine if you're hiring like a, uh, a big-time auditing firm or something or I don't know what to, 
to solve these kind of problems from a managerial consulting standpoint or something. At some point, they have to tell you a budget. I mean, you don't just pay an hourly rate and that's it, right? And I guess that's part of my philosophy too is like, you know, no matter what anyone tells you, there's always a budget. So mm-hmm. let's, let's tackle that up front because if you don't tell them a budget, then they'll make one up on their own. A lot of transparency there at the beginning saves you a time and probably also goes a long way towards preserving the relationship for the long haul. You know, if you think about it, part of our clients' problems is problem is that they don't they're not completely sure what it is they need. Yes. They they know the business result they want, without a doubt. They know that better than us. But how but do they are they sure what they are gonna put in place to get that result is the right choice? Because that's based on their own biases and inside information and a lot of other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what's, what's most exciting to me, and it doesn't always happen, sometimes, you know, we, we go kind of according to the plan and so forth, but, but often when we're doing this sort of upfront work, we'll say, have you guys ever considered doing this and implementing this or whatever? And this whole new idea, because part of it is like an ideation process, right? But that whole new idea becomes the focus of the project, you know, which, so, I mean, that's a that's a huge value, right? If it was something they didn't even they didn't even consider. Right, right, and and they're not stuck paying for something that later on they're sitting back thinking, why did they bring? Why did we bring them in? This isn't any better than where we were before because yeah. you, know, you guys take the time to find out what they really need, not just what they think they need necessarily. We've talked a lot about how you've grown your own company. You've mentioned how you help to increase ROI on your website you have some case studies. Can you talk with us about how you help other business owners grow their companies, uh, you know, specifically perhaps using one of those case studies? Sure. I think a good case study that we've got out there talks about one of our customers is in the construction space. And they had an issue where when a, when there's a major project out there, you know, one of their customers, it goes out to basically they get an RFQ, right? So, you know, they, somebody says, or an RFP says, you know, give us some proposals on this. And this sort of race begins, right? So everybody and all their competitors try to start putting together proposals and engineers start working and architects and designers and, and all this stuff start working on this plan. But on a customer side, it's kind of really just whoever gets it in their hand first ends up winning because it's, it's a commodity market. I mean, everybody, you know, anybody that they sent this thing to knows how to build, say, a skyscraper or a building. So, if you're one of the first three people to get a proposal in hand, you're good. If your proposal comes two weeks later, it's probably too late. And so what we work with them, at the at that time, the average lead time on their projects was about two weeks. Okay, And that's because they were doing everything with their engineers and architects manually. And we came in and basically built a system uh, where the salespeople who was actually working on that RFP could come to a website, populate, and work through sort of a web-based design tool and then generate all the engineering architecture drawings themselves with a sort of background process that ran. So no engineer involvement, no architect involvement or anything. And that meant that when the RFP went out, we took their lead time from, you know, this was our, this was our sort of tagline we used for the executive board, took the, tag, took the lead time from two weeks to two minutes. Because they really could go in and just click, 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 and then boom, and then send it. And, and customers and competitors were sort of like, did you get? Did you know about this like a week ahead of us, or did you get <laughs> sure. off somehow? How did you get this to me in a half hour? And it was well, we we ran it, we built this software, you know, and so 
So I think that's the example there is like, well, how many more deals were they able to win because they got in the, they got were first in the door, right? right. So that you know that's one aspect. But then you also had the savings of how much engineer time they didn't have to pay engineers to make these preliminary drawings, right? If you've got a staff of I think they I think they had a staff of 300 engineers who 80% of their time was spent working on these type of drawings. So now that's gone. So that was a big big deal that really helped them kind of beat out their competitors. And what's interesting is, you know, we, we launched that project or that application probably about seven years ago now. So it's been out quite some time, maybe six years. And in, since that time, everybody has played catch up, right? Mm-hmm. And now there's actually a, there's some new products on the market There's you know, that were developed by some competitors and then sort of like put out there as a product. And so it's funny to see that now finally this is something everybody has. But for a good five, six years, they were the only one that had it, right? right. And, and so if you're a $4 billion company, what's that worth? Not long ago, we used to distinguish companies as tech companies as opposed to other companies. But the reality is is that all companies today are tech companies, or at least they're tech mm-hmm. dependent. And innovations in tech are they're driving all businesses. It doesn't matter what they are. So what are some of the innovative advances that you are seeing that businesses may not be taking advantage of and could be, no matter what industry they're in? I think I can tell you some of the trends that a lot of people are asking for, that at least some of the real innovators are, are pushing for. One thing is visibility. Visibility for the customer to know what's happening with their product or their account or whatever. And so a lot of Companies are, are working on dashboards and other tools that if you've got, for instance, a factory that you own in Japan, instead of having to fly somebody over there to tell you what the error codes are on the machine, that you, you know, there's this whole concept of like, I want to I be sitting on the beach, open my laptop and, and view all that data, right? Mm-hmm. And there's ways to do that now, even just off the shelf, but it's, it's engineering level data. It's, it's you know, it's like dumps and of uh, Excel sheets and stuff. And what customers really want is, is a, sort of like a consumable, happy, friendly way or view that they can look at, right? So I, I think that kind of like trend in general, I mean, you see that even now, like when you order a pizza or something, or when you order Jimmy John, I can see what is the status of my order? Is it being delivered? Is it being made? Where is it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about all that, like peeling back the layers a little bit so that your end user can really see what's happening, and I think there's a lot of room for that. If I make a, an auto insurance claim, do I have a way of seeing all the information online somewhere to know what's happening? Most of the time not. Most of them are faxing in a document still. Right? right. A lot of that stuff is really out of date. Obviously, there's a lot of buzz around AI and machine learning, all this stuff, which is still kind of in its infancy. But even sort of like just basically just, you know, letting machines help you make better decisions is maybe a better way to look at it. There's a lot of sort of insights into manufacturing process that people can discover using those type of tools. So, I mean, I think, I think those are two big trends. Mm-hmm. Certainly, people are always wanting their employees to be more connected and, and have better mobile apps and better experiences. And it's, I mean, I think it's rare. I mean, it's, you know, particularly if you look at an industrial services company, I mean, I bet only one out of 50 of them has a really nice mobile interface for their employees. And, and what does that mean? What, I mean, how, much, how many phone calls have to be made and stuff? So, so there's a ton of room. I mean, I, I often say that of all the problems we can solve that are, that are worth it to solve, 
we've only probably really solved like 5% of them, you know, <laughs> from an IT standpoint. So there's a lot of opportunity. It's interesting, especially when you talk about the visibility part of it. It's the first thing you mentioned there. You may not think that if I have, using your examples, if I'm an insurance company and that my competitor is Jimmy John's. But the reality of it is, is that if Jimmy John's creates a platform or a dashboard or an interface that I use frequently and that becomes the norm that people are used to, to, uh, to be able to access that kind of information, you are in some ways then in competition with Jimmy John's because you're not, you're not bringing what customers perceive as the latest conveniences to them. Uh, you're outdated, mm -hmm. you know, you're an old horse and we're going to go with somebody. We, we want to look for somebody that does incorporate those kinds of things into the relationship. So I, I guess if, if you're thinking that this doesn't apply to me because those are industries that have nothing to do with mine, well, from a visibility, convenience, uh, deliverability standpoint, those people who are not your competitors, quote unquote, are still establishing standards in consumers' minds about access to information and communication and so forth that you're not offering. Well, it's, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I think it, it's true for internal employees and stuff, too. I mean, I, I remember I was working with a client once and, and one of the managers there was, you know, in his early 60s. And I mean, this was probably close to 10 years ago. But he said, you know, I hired this, quote unquote, kid. 25-year-old, quote-unquote, kid, and he just quit because he doesn't like our computer systems. <laughs> and that blew his mind. Like, why would you quit a job because you didn't like the CRM you had to use? Because 10, 15 years ago, like, that would be that would be insane to, that that would even rank on, a, on the irritation or something, right? Mm -hmm. But like you said, if, if I can pull up my iPhone and buy stock and send emails and, and Facebook or whatever else is I'm doing, check my bank account balance, super, super easy. But then I got to go to, uh, into a mainframe to generate a quote if I'm a salesperson or some really like onerous Excel sheet that has all these formulas out the wazoo. I mean, there's this like disconnect between my personal life and my business life at that point, the tools I have that makes it feel like the stone age, right? Exactly. And yeah. people will, people will quit because they start feeling like, I mean, it just irritates them, you know, especially millennials and such that are used to that stuff more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true. I mean, you think about it, how would how many people would put their money with a bank right now that they didn't have some kind of online banking to do your account? Would you what interest rate rate would they have to offer you to get you to put your money in that savings account? It's an external facing customer as well as an employee traction and retention issue as well when you get behind on uh, these the software and, and the different technology advancements that you yeah. can incorporate into your business. Uh, Sam, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. If someone's interested in finding out more about what you do or want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? So the easiest way would just be go to uh, unstoppablesoftware.com, our website. Or you could also reach out directly. Uh, my cell phone is 513-382-8499. Always available just to be directly called. And I'm happy to chat about any questions your listeners have. Thank you again so much for your time and best of luck to you. Thank you. You too, Kelly. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to visit the Talking Business Now website at TalkingBusinessNow.com for access to all my podcasts and to sign up for the weekly Talking Business Now newsletter. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.